0: That to Joshua 24. We'll be there with his parting words tonight. A little preview of what is to come in a couple of weeks. We're going to leave off right where we are right now. I mean, we're going to start up right where we are right now. I'm moving into the book of Judges, and we'll do that over the summer. Uh, so that's just kind of the next stage in the history there. Now, next week, I'm going to be at a, fu- at a funeral. I'm going to be at a wedding in Lubbock. Uh, and so we'll have uh, Gary Cohen will be here in the morning but at night, I really want to encourage you to, to be there to hear Scott Wolf. So Scott and Robin have been here for a couple of years. And Scott is one of the best Bible class teachers I've gotten here in a while. We, for a while, Isla and I drove up to a group. He was leading a small group up in Louisville. Uh, and it was excellent, uh, just walking us through Romans and some other texts. And then I got to hear him a couple of weeks ago. He's teaching the uh, shout class right now. And I was like, man, I'm going to... So I, I asked him if he would come preach... And he was kind of freaked out by it because I guess he's never preached before. And he's like, whoa, I don't know about this. And I said, man, you're going to be great. I said, Sunday night, just teach. I mean, just teach the Word of God. That's what people want. And so he will be here and truly mark my words. It'll be good. He has really good thoughts about a lot of things and is a really good uh, expositor of the Word of God. We'll open up some things uh, that maybe you haven't seen before. So that's going to be great next week. And I'll watch it on video. Uh, but in uh, so, last week, Joshua chapter twenty three, um, we started working on the parting words of Joshua. One hundred and ten year old Joshua, he knows the end is near for him. And at one hundred and ten, you pretty much got that notion. It's you're in, you're in the final lap. Uh, the people knew it was at the end, and so he called together last week leaders. Uh, Not necessarily everybody, but the leadership, the elders and the tribal leaders, the clan leaders. And he shared some thoughts with them that we talked about last week. And uh, tonight, Joshua 24 is more general. He's going to talk to the nation. Uh, This is going to kind of, I'm kind of imagining FDR or something on his radio chats, talking to the nation. He is talking to the nation tonight, giving those final words. And there comes a time when each leader is is called upon to make those final remarks. A coach, a, a teacher, uh, uh, man or woman, CEO, president, um, where you're going to give your last talk to your team. And uh, this is what we find tonight with Joshua. You choose your words carefully, um, and we can safely assume with his advanced age uh, that this is the final major address that he gave to the nation. And he has led these people for Uh, the last two decades on very specific military missions as they take the promised land. Uh, And he's been a leader uh, since before that as well. So let's get into Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges. By the way, Shechem, this is the place where God first promised Abraham that he would inherit these lands, that his descendants would receive these lands. So there they are at Shechem. some of the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, they lived beyond the river. This would be the Euphrates River, not the Jordan River. The Euphrates, And they worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river, and I led him throughout Canaan, and I gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave the twins, Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but to Jacob and his sons they went down to Egypt. Then I said to Moses, so we're getting a very condensed history here. I said to Moses and Aaron, uh, I sent Moses and Aaron, I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there. And I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, literally, the fathers and mothers of these people were brought out of Egypt. We're one generation uh, removed from that. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians uh, pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan." They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, we remember his story, when Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, the son of Beor, to put a prophet, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. Now this they remember firsthand. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you. Uh, A lot of discussion about this in scholarly circles. Uh, Some people think it's the army. Uh, Some people think it's, and I think this is probably just right, my presence ahead of you. Uh, to afflict those that were before Israel and send them out of the land. I set my hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also, the two Amorite kings, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you the land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them. And you eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. So Joshua begins his final speech by taking them on a journey that starts hundreds of years before. Their own personal journey. The journey of the people. The people of Israel. And the very distant history of the people he begins with. And then he zeroes in on their common points of intersection, things they had actually seen and experienced with God and with each other. So he begins not with the traditional father of the nation, with Father Abraham, but with Abraham's forefathers, with Terah, his dad and Nahor. and how far they have come. These two ancestors, Terah and Nahor, these were not God worshippers. These were pagan men who worshipped an assortment of local deities. They did not have a relationship with Yahweh. And so this is part of their history. He's reminding them of this. It's important for them to know that just because you are an Israelite, just because you are part of that lineage of Abraham, it is not automatic that you will be a God worshiper. It is not a given This is going to be a theme in this chapter. Each generation must do the choosing, must make the decision. Abraham's people before Genesis 12, they didn't worship God, right? So Abraham, he heard the Lord. He chose to follow the Lord um, wherever God would lead. And he had these amazing promises, including this, this land that they now occupy, if he would follow the Lord. So that was his choice. And the time is coming as he leaves They need to make their choice. And one of the things that we saw as missionaries working in Brazil, Isla and I, um, we saw this idea firsthand. uh, Brazil is a Catholic country. And one of the things that goes along with that is there is this default assumption. If you are born in Brazil, you are Catholic. If you are something else, it is because you made that choice. If you're Catholic, nine times out of ten, more than nine times out of ten, it is because that's what your grandparents were and your great-grandparents, and you were born in that family, so automatically Catholic. Right? Um, if it's going to be something different, you have to choose. Um, the truth is we don't inherit our faith like we inherit our DNA. Um, there's no such thing as being a default believer. Um, And even if we did inherit faith, even if we could, uh, in the case of Israel, it wouldn't have been a good thing. If Abraham had inherited the faith of his fathers, he would have been a pagan. Each generation has to decide, right? Have to make their own choice. Will we or will we not follow the Lord? Will we stay on the trajectory of parents and grandparents, or will we abandon that trajectory and choose a different path? Abraham chose a different path. If we don't decide, then we don't by default inherit grandma's faith. That's not the way it works. We don't have a borrowed faith, someone else's faith. We have our own faith. Now Joshua wants them to remember they haven't always been God's people. And it's not automatic that they will just generation after generation be God's spiritual people. God has chosen them. Will they choose Him? That's a question each generation will answer for itself. Joshua continues verse 14. Now, let's talk about today. We've talked about the past. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living now. But as for me and my household, we Will serve the Lord. Now I want you to notice, as you read Joshua chapter 24, Joshua is not assuming the answer to any of these questions is yes. Okay? Joshua is not assuming, of course you're going to serve the Lord. In fact, if you pay attention to what he says, he assumes they will not. He assumes they will most likely choose options B, C, or D. He's not expecting them to follow the Lord. He wants them to. He hopes that they will. But again, it's not automatic. It's not something that's just going to happen. He's just, and he's not being pessimistic here. He's just recognizing the way things are. Just because you worship the Lord, it doesn't mean your kids are going to worship the Lord or your grandkids are going to worship the Lord. It doesn't mean that. And so here's kind of their response or reaction, starting in verse 16. Then the people answered, Far be it for us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us. So they're agreeing with him about this story that they're a part of who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery. And who performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord, verse 18, drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, again, here's this. Pessimism or cynicism, if you will, Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, 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 we will. Serve the Lord. Serve. Serve, serve, serve the Lord nine times in chapter 24. Serving the Lord appears in the text. Joshua just keeps talking about serving the Lord. And they serve the Lord because the Lord has been serving them. This has been a very one-sided relationship. God has continuously given and given and given. He calls out Abraham, gives him these amazing promises, descendants as numerous as stars in the sky. This land will belong to your descendants one day. And, And when they find themselves in Egypt enslaved, they cry out to God, and who brings deliverance? God answers their prayers. And God delivers them from Egypt. God is taking the initiative. God is the author of their story. And in the recent past, as they have been conquering city after city, taking possession of acres and acres of land, God has clearly been the one who's been front and center. He's the author. He's the writer of this story. He's the maker of their destiny. And now uh, they are to serve the Lord. And they should choose to serve Him because He has done so much for them. He has called them His own. And He has treated them as His own. Giving them opportunities, showering His favor upon them. And I like that because as with so many stories in the Old Testament, there is... A kernel, a seed, a foretaste of the gospel. In that idea, we share this in common with Israel. In Christ, we have been saved. We have been delivered. While we, Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, Jesus came and delivered us. In Christ, we have been saved. We didn't serve in order to gain salvation amen we gain salvation and that's why we serve we are not working our way into God's favor we're working out of God's favor we serve because we have been saved our worship our ministry flow from that realization that God purchased us delivered us he has given us freedom just as he freed Israel from Egypt he has freed us from the clutches of Satan and sin and death and given us all that we need I love the passage where Paul just kind of erupts in praise in Ephesians chapter 1 he says this in verses 3 and 4 he says praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He is the author of our story. And we are blessed. Every spiritual blessing. He's talking about us. We are so blessed. The Lord has chosen us since before time began to be the objects in Christ of his grace and his favor. Thank you, Jesus. And really, in our case, he's gone well beyond what he ever did for Israel in the Old Testament. He has given us not a land, he's given us his son, he has given us his spirit, he has given us promises far greater than any acres of dirt we will inherit someday. We will receive a salvation that outlasts this life. Our response to this is to live in full appreciation of this, in full recognition of this, and in the, in the, under the lordship of Jesus, we choose to live out our appreciation, our gratitude each and every day by choosing to serve the Lord instead of worshiping the gods of the land. And there are, we could do sermons on this. I'm not going to. You're welcome. There are a lot of gods in this land. Money gods, sex gods, worship the flag gods, political gods, success gods. We choose to serve the Lord. Much of Joshua's final words they call Israel to remember, to consider the past. And what they have been given, not only lands, not only tangible, physical blessings, but to remember their special relationship with the Lord. They are His people. They are His precious possession. And God has carved this relationship out for them to enjoy. Remember what God has done. And again, a foreshadowing of today where Jesus set up this Lord's Supper for us to stop down on Sundays and take a moment to remember, as we get lost in everything that's going on, bad things, good things, other stuff, to orient ourselves with the supper around our story, our true story in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't ride on the coattails of our parents and grandparents. Joshua lets people know that's, that's not how it works. The default position is not, well, my parents and grandparents have been faithful to the Lord. The default position, the way it works, is to depart from God. If there's not a choosing... If there's not a decision, if there's not a taking of the knee in front of God, the default is to drift away. And Joshua's a good leader. He knows that. And so he's warning them of this. He's alerting them to this. Now, this is not to say parents and grandparents have no influence. Obviously, have a great deal of influence. Um, we know one generation can influence the next. And we've heard in Deuteronomy these words as, as, as parent, to parents as you're walking along the road to pass on instruction, to pass on the fear of the Lord to the children. Every day, everywhere you're at, passing that on, that inheritance, hoping they will make the right choice and become followers of God. Back to verse 15, Joshua calls the people to make their choice to make their decision to follow the Lord or worship other gods. And then, of course, as he famously states in verse 15, But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. 110-year-old Joshua. As for me and my household... We will serve the Lord. So, I'm going to go on a couple of rants here, just endure. I think it's important stuff to say. I want to be clear here. So, we don't get to make the choice for future generations. Parents and grandparents, we don't get to do anything that guarantees that the children, the grandchildren will be faithful. But we have a responsibility to those generations. In fact, I would say in the Bible, it is the primary mission of parents to pass faith on, to instill in children the word of the Lord, a love for the Lord. There is no greater responsibility for parents and grandparents than this, help them know the Lord. Help them develop a relationship with Jesus. As for me and my house, we are called to a mission as parents, this mission above all others, to help our children know and love the Lord. The primary mission is not to get them onto that select soccer team the primary mission is not to get them into that college. The primary mission is not even to make sure they are financially successful. None of those are bad things. They just aren't the primary mission. The primary mission for me as a father is not to be the buddy of my children. I love my children. My primary mission is not to be their BFF. We are parents. They are our children. And while they are in our homes, while they are under our care, above all else, we are responsible, and we will be held accountable for this, we are responsible to help them know the Lord. Amen. Years back, I think enough time has gone by that this is safe, (laughs) I hope. It's probably been six or seven years. I had a couple come to me. As they say, I didn't know them from Adam. But they considered themselves part of the Preston Crest family. Um, Did they attend church here? No, they did not attend church here, nor had they for years. I had never seen them or met them. But they consider themselves members of the church here. You see, they worshipped online, and they told me that their kids were just uh, too much energy, too lively to bring them to church. So the mom assured me they would sit on the bed every Sunday morning, and be a part of our worship service online. Yeah, right. Um, but they needed a pastoral letter of recommendation so that their kids could get into a private. Christian school. Now, I'll give you the end of the story. I gave him the letter. Yeah, sure. Here's your letter. It made me sad. You as parents are making the choosing, it's just too hard. To do church, to wrestle the kids, uh, it's just too hard. You're not doing your job. You've abdicated your primary mission at that point. Somehow I have a feeling you're going to make sure they get to school, this expensive private school. I bet you're going to make sure they get washed behind the ears and everything and they're dressed and off to school. But you're not making sure they get in the house of the Lord? While your children are at home, your main God-given mission is to help them know the Lord. As for me and my house, it is your house. Who pays the mortgage payment? Is your nine-year-old paying the mortgage payment? (laughs) Is your six-year-old buying the groceries that fill your pantry? your 14 year old paying the light bill and the water bill it's your house they don't choose whether or not they go to school they shouldn't be given the choice whether or not they will go to church look Let's just take junior high boys, for example. (laughs) If you give the junior high age boys the choice on the important things of life, I am pretty sure they will choose the video games. They will choose not to go to school. Wow, I've got that choice. They will likely, junior high boys mind you, they will likely choose not to take a bath, not to brush their teeth, So Joshua talks to other parents, to other leaders of families, and he basically goes, Bill Belichick on him, says, do your job until they move out, until they're on their own. You are primarily responsible for helping them take God seriously and for encouraging them to put him first. You get to make those decisions for them while they are under your roof. Not only do you get to, you're supposed to. And we'll be held accountable for that. One more part of my rant, and then I will wrap up. <laughs> hey, we're finishing the series. I get to have a few thoughts here, right? <laughs> I'll talk about Sunday morning. You know, we're getting to this age. There's so much, something has shifted, you know, in the last 20, 30 years about... yeah. It's your own relationship with the Lord, and that can be here or there. You don't need to come to church. It's not this, what happens in this room is not important. I would say this: what happens in this room, what happens when God's people gather collectively is important and has been for thousands of years, and that hasn't changed. The congregation, the called out, the people, when they gather, it's an important moment. It's not the end-all be-all, but it is an important moment. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I know there are a lot of churches, and I'm not going to name any because then it, gets, it goes beyond rant to being unkind and judgmental. I don't want to do that, but I know a lot of churches, hey, they don't have their kids in the worship assemblies at all on Sundays. You go on Sunday morning, and the first thing you do, you check them in. You check them in. And they go off and have a great time there and with the other kids and all the activities and all that stuff over there. And, and they never sit in the auditorium, even for a second, with their parents. And that's pretty much every community church I know around here does it this way. And I know, believe me, the parents love it. <laughs> and the kids who don't have to suffer through the worship assembly, they love it. Um, It's very popular with families. Um, Parents don't have to wrestle their kids the entire time. Uh, Kids get to go off and have a great time with the other kids. Everybody loves it. But I am glad that on Sunday mornings for a big chunk of our worship assemblies, we do have children's church during the sermon, but I am glad for a big chunk of our worship assemblies on Sunday mornings, the children are sitting here in this room with us, I am grateful for the noise that I hear on Sunday morning. I am grateful for the parents who are willing to to wrestle their kids a little bit in here on Sunday morning. Because if you're a parent, you may feel like your little one is getting nothing out of being in here in this room on Sunday morning. You may feel like your kid is being a distraction to other worshipers here on Sunday morning. And you may feel like all you are doing is trying to manhandle them and keep them still and quiet. I think it matters more than you know that they are here sitting next to you in the worship assembly of God's people. I think it matters more than you know. I still, and I bet a lot of you do too, I still remember Sunday mornings in Neosho, Missouri with my parents at the Hillcrest Church of Christ. They are, these memories are burned into my consciousness. I didn't know all that was going on. Right? I didn't under, no, I didn't understand everything. But I remember looking up at my mom and dad and I knew they were worshiping God. And I saw them listening to the sermon that I didn't understand. And I saw them putting money into the collection plate. I saw my parents worshiping God. I saw them pray. And I could feel the weight Even when I was two years old, I could feel the weight. I could sense the value that this had to my mom and my dad. And at that time, yeah, I didn't enjoy every moment sitting on the pew. I certainly didn't enjoy getting hauled out to the front porch to get whooped. I didn't enjoy that. Maybe we need to cut that out of the tape later, you know, but... But I can still remember seeing my folks put God first. And I may not have understood all the words, but I could see they were putting God first. And it's helped me. They had a, as for me and my house, kind of attitude. And I would encourage parents to have that same spirit today. As for me and my house, yeah, the day's going to come. When they will choose for themselves, when they can choose whether to get up or stay in bed. But while they're under your roof, that day has not come yet. Okay, official end of rant, thank you. Well, let's make sure that we, like Joshua, are taking the primary mission seriously, uh, to put God at the center of who, who we are as a family, to show our children the way of faith, to make sure that they understand this is their story, And whenever I officiate a wedding, I mean, I make sure, and there are no children generally in the weddings. Sometimes there are. But usually the children are going to come a few years down the road. But I make sure to talk about this primary role that we have in our homes to make sure Christ is at the center. And we may be better or worse at other things. We may neglect other things in our homes, but we're not going to neglect that because that's our primary mission. As for us, we serve the Lord. And finally, in Joshua's final words, we see that like ancient Israel, we decide. We can serve any God or gods that we choose to serve. We can give our hearts and our affections to the gods of the Amorites, to the gods of this group, the gods of that group, to the gods of money, the gods of success, the gods of patriotism, or we can choose to serve the Lord. We have the right to choose who we will serve, who we will worship. And by the way, I think whether you're a a Christian, Buddhist, agnostic, or an atheist, you're going to serve a God. You're going to worship a God. It very likely in our culture is the God of yourself but you will put someone or something at the center of your affections. And while we get to choose that, we don't choose the consequences of that, do we? And he reminds them of that. Whatever choice you make, he tells Israel, there will be consequences. So let's make that choice known tonight as we stand and we worship the Lord. If you do need to take communion, it's been prepared and will be served to you in the fellowship hall. And you can exit as we sing this closing song Father of mercies, day by day.